Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. Let me just say a word to you. Hope. Hope. What do you think of when you hear the word hope? Like Eric there, I think oftentimes when we hear the word hope, we think of an uncertain desire. Like, I hope I get an A on this test, even though I didn't study for it. Or I hope it doesn't rain next Saturday. Or I hope Steve doesn't talk too long this morning. According to the dictionary, here's the definition of hope. We have it here on the screen, I hope. (laughs) Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Now that's interesting, but like the 80s rock band Boston, I want hope to be more than just a feeling, don't you? I want it to be more than a feeling, and that's exactly what the New Testament says about hope. Hope is not optimism. Hope is not positive thinking. Hope is not a hunch. It's not sentimentality, and it's definitely not a feeling, according to the Bible. If you're following on your notes, for believers, hope is an inward assurance no matter our circumstances. Key word, assurance. It's an inward assurance we have no matter what we're going through. Listen, Christian hope is not based on feelings or desires. It is based on God's promises. And believers in God trust that what God says will happen, period. And we base that on God's character. He is steadfast. He is faithful. He is true. Therefore, his promises and purposes are secure. Therefore, we can be assured in our hope. I don't know about you, but I could use some hope today. How about you? I mean, just what? The last month, we've got Afghanistan, we've got Haiti, we're remembering 9-11, we've got all kinds of angst and anger and division going on in our country. I don't know about you, but I find it more and more difficult to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus today as we're seen more often as intolerant and ignorant before others. It's hard not to feel a little bit hopeless today. And in some ways, as we saw in that video, that's where the Thessalonians found themselves. After coming to faith in Jesus, they found themselves under this tremendous pressure as they underwent trials and suffering. Now, the truth is, we're not going to go necessarily through the same suffering that they did, but we will go through trials for following Jesus today. And if you're following on your notes, here's what I just want to come back to again and again as we undergo this series together. In this letter, we're going to see, even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Today, as we cover the first 10 verses of this letter, I want to walk through what Paul says, not only to the Thessalonians, but I think he would still say this to us today about hope. So let me invite you to do something you're going to do the next 10 weeks, which is take your Bible and turn it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 1. If you're getting used to where things are in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians is about four-fifths of the way back. It's right before 2 Thessalonians. That's a pastor joke that we love to use every time we're in one of these books. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles in the seat underneath you that we provide for you there. Take that home with you. That's our gift to you. But you can find this on page 956. In these first 10 verses, Paul is going to address 
three things. The reason we can have hope, how hope comes to us, and what hope does to us. So let's start by looking at 1 Thessalonians verse 1 together. It reads, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Just a little pause here. How cool is that? The apostle Paul, of all people, could have muscled up right here and said, no, this is my letter. Instead, he says, I'm doing this in partnership with others. Ministry is collaborative. I want to include Paul, excuse me, Silas and Timothy in this as well. I love his attitude here. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Verse two, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, I'm gonna pause here because believe it or not, right there in verse one, Paul gives us the reason we can have hope still today. If you're following on your notes again with me, the reason for hope is the gospel of grace and peace. Now, I know the word gospel gets thrown a lot around in the church especially, and it simply just means good news. The good news When Jesus, fully God, enthroned in heaven, took on human flesh and came to dwell among us, some of the first words he says is, I've come to declare good news. Now, now what is the good news he came to declare? Well, God's grace. God's grace towards us. Grace is simply receiving something we don't deserve. So I'll give an example. If I sin against my wife, which never happens, and she chooses to forgive me, she is showing me grace. And in the same way, friends, in in grace, Jesus comes to save us from our sin in the eyes of a holy God, and he offers his life in place of our life. Paul sums this up in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, when he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice, grace is a gift, and it comes from God. We needed to be saved from a situation from which we could not save ourselves. What was that situation? It was called sin. And where does sin lead us? Death. All humans have turned their back on God. And listen, what is the result of that? Hopelessness. Utter hopelessness. But God has provided hope. In Jesus Christ. If you're following on your notes, grace is the good news of the free gift of God's salvation. And I just want to say, you will never understand the gospel until you understand this. Everything about the gospel is from God, period. The gospel is God. The gospel originated in God from time eternal, and it was accomplished by God on the cross. Now, I want you to realize why I'm talking about this is realize something about the person who was writing this letter right off the bat. He says, grace and peace. Paul was a guy who lived his life performing for God, hoping that that would be enough for one day he could stand before him and he'd say, come on in, Paul. But there's no hope in that if you've tried to live that way. That's exhausting. It's a burden. And so one day, Paul encounters Jesus on the road, and Jesus says to him, you can't earn this. This is a gift of grace that I want to give you freely, Paul. And the heart of the gospel is this truth. God loves us not because of who we are or who we try to be. He loves us despite who we are because he has given us the grace that we do not deserve. So listen, the gospel is not something you achieve. Do you need to hear that? You can't achieve it. 
This good news, it's something you receive as a gift, initiated by God out of the sheer generosity of his heart. Now, I want you to notice as we go through this letter, grace isn't just a one-time thing, though. It's not, hey, I prayed a prayer when I was seven, and now, no, no, no. Grace is for every day. Yes, it is the gift God gives us at that moment of salvation, but it's also a gift he gives us in order to live out the life that he's called us to live. It's called sanctification, right? Our becoming more like the person who gave us this gift in the first place. It's what Paul says in verse three. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, interesting, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, love, we sometimes view these as these passive things that just sort of happen to us, but Paul talks about them as being work. In Galatians, he refers to those three things as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, these are going to be the outworkings of the grace of God in our lives. Grace isn't just a one-time thing. It's something that happens to us in our daily lives as we live our lives worthy of the gospel that Jesus has given us. Let me give you the best example I could come up with this week. When I was 30, I was given one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, the gift of sight. I was pretty much legally blind. I had huge, thick glasses at one point, and somebody gave me the gift of LASIK. It was awesome. The next day, I'm waking up. I'm like, I can see. I don't have to grope around in the dark for my glasses. But here's the thing. That was an amazing gift, the gift of grace. But what if I received that gift and then said, I'm going to keep my eyes shut the rest of my life? I'm not going to use this gift that God has given me. You would think, well, you're being very ungrateful there. And in the same way, friends, when we receive this gift of grace, we're to live it out. We were blind, but now we see, and so we live in the way that God calls us to. This is going to be a big theme in this letter. The other reason we have hope is because the gospel gives us peace. When you find the word peace in the Bible, it's not talking about some inner tranquility that you have when you're in the bathtub with the bubbles and the kids are put to sleep. It's this amazing Hebrew word, shalom. Have you heard that before, shalom? Which, if you're following on your notes, means a wholeness and well-being resulting from grace. A helpful way to think about Peace in the Bible is to contrast it to sin. Sin has messed up everything. And as we can see, there is no peace. Shalom is a word that describes how God is, but also how he is going to set all of those things right. Shalom is a word that describes the way things are supposed to be. So when you hear Paul talk about peace, think of this word shalom, an assurance one day all things will be made well and we actually get to be a part of that as his people we are to be bringers of this shalom this peace so friends the bottom line is the reason we have hope the reason we can have assurance is because of the gospel the gospel of grace that's the only thing that can ultimately bring you peace Paul goes on then to talk about how one receives this gospel of hope. Let's read verses four and five out loud on our notes together there, would you? It says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, I want to come back to verse four in a minute, but I just want us to take notice of verse five here, because the gospel doesn't come by itself. 
The gospel doesn't just drop from a parachute in from heaven. No, Saul, Timothy, Silas, they brought the gospel. Understand, before they arrived in Thessalonica, there was no church. But when they leave, there is a church that has deep roots here. How does something like that happen? Well, Paul describes how hope comes. First, the gospel comes with words. I mean, this is going to be first grade stuff for a minute here, right? True, the, word, the gospel doesn't come with words only, but it does come with words because the gospel is a word. It is a message, and words matter. Would you agree? Vaccine. Words matter because words have meaning, and words are the building blocks of sentences, and sentences are the building blocks of ideas, and the gospel always comes in words. It's a series of sentences and ideas and affirmations and assertions about grace and peace and sin and forgiveness. There's no gospel. Again, this might be a duh for you, but there's no gospel without words. Paul is as clear as he can be about this in Romans 10, 17. He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Why am I harping on this? Because we live in a day and age where I think a lot of followers of Jesus just want to love people into the kingdom. I I fall into this, right? I just want to do nice things to people, and then hopefully at some point they'll say, ooh, he must love Jesus, The gospel must always come with words. People have to hear the words of the good news of grace that can bring peace to their lives. But he goes on to say that words by themselves are never enough to give a person hope because words can be misunderstood. They can be disregarded. Somehow they need to be enforced. And so he says in this verse, it came with power. When Paul says the gospel's power, I don't think he's talking about miracles at that point. I think he's saying the gospel has its own force. It has its own life about it. It's not dead words. These words are alive, and it is by the power of the word only that it can penetrate into somebody's heart and conscience and mind and will. Have you experienced this? I know a lot of people have grown up in the church. You're sitting in this room right now. You've probably heard the gospel a million times. But has there ever been a moment in your life where you were listening to the words of the gospel and you thought, whoa, it's just come alive to me right now. This is the first time I've actually heard it. The gospel, when it comes and changes someone, comes in power. It needs, leads to the next thing. The gospel comes with a deep conviction. Conviction is different than condemnation. It's not a shaming thing. This is an eye-opening thing, the thing I was just talking about, right? When Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do once he returns back to heaven, one of the things he says he's going to do is convict people of their sin. In fact, notice John 16, 8 and 9 says this. Don't have that one. It says the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict people of sin. Have you ever seen this? There's been times when Jeff, Brian, myself, other people will be standing down front and somebody will come up to us and they're just broken, weeping, convicted that they need to change, that they need the hope of the gospel because they've been pursuing false hopes. That's only something that can happen by the gospel. And then the last thing, the gospel comes with the Holy Spirit. I saved this one for last because let's just be honest, this is the glue that holds all three of those things together. We can speak words and hope there's power and hope there's conviction, but all of that comes only through the person of the Holy Spirit. 
He's the only one that who can illumine somebody's mind or heart. I grew up in the church. I got tired of hearing the gospel until one day the Holy Spirit came into my life and said, you need this. You need this word. He opened my life up in power and conviction, and that's how I received the hope of the gospel of grace that now gives me peace. So if you're following on your notes, you're going to have to write small here. The gospel comes in word with power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is how our message of hope works. It worked back then. It's still how it works today. Paul closes this section by showing us five things the gospel now does in our lives. And like the video said, I think these are really five of the major themes of this book. So we're going to expand on this throughout the rest of our series together. But let's start back in verse four and look at the first thing the gospel does in a person's life when they receive it. It said, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The reason we have hope, friends, is what? The gospel. The gospel comes through word and power and conviction and the Holy Spirit. What does the gospel then do if you've received it? Number one, the gospel gives us a new identity. I see three things just in this one verse about the new identity we have when we receive the gospel. First, Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers and sisters. This is a pretty remarkable thing. We don't get as much today, but listen, the only people who were members of God's family back in this day were the Jewish people. They were God's chosen people, right? But here Paul is saying to these Greeks and Gentiles, welcome to the family. You have been adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father through the work of Jesus. Your status is now as an heir, a co-heir with Christ for all eternity. Again, I don't think we understand how big of a deal this was back in this day. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Again, this is a huge deal. Gentiles, a part of Abraham's seed? Yes, Paul says. Now, I like to call people brother or sister at different times, and I think we've, again, probably gotten used to it, but do we realize how big of a deal it is to be able to say that to one another? Because it's literally true. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ because we are part of the same family. Second, the gospel means we are loved by God. Reminder, this love was not earned. It was initiated by God and his gospel of grace. Good news for you. His love can't decrease. You can't lose it. As his children, you're now loved unconditionally. We can now call God our Father. The gospel of grace has put us in a right standing with God now and forever. We have peace with him. We're adopted. This was the most important realization of my life that helped me move from works to faith. Understanding that the way God viewed me was not based on how I acted. It was based on what he had done for me. He simply loved for me. My identity is one who is loved unconditionally. That's when the good news became good news. For so many people, it's still not good news. 
For so many people, it's like, yeah, I know he saved me, but now he expects all this stuff from me. You're loved. Third, the gospel means we are chosen by God. Have you ever been chosen for something? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? In my eighth grade year, I really wanted to make the basketball team in junior high. The problem was I was five foot two, no joke. And there were some really tall guys. And there was a lot of kids who came out to try out. So the coach lined us up on the baseline and he started picking out his team. Very first person picked yours truly. Now be honest here. I was not even close to being one of the better basketball players, but he chose me first. And that was amazing. By calling these Christians chosen, Paul is using language from the Old Testament, language usually used exclusively for Israel, right? We sometimes call this the doctrine of election. And boy, can it open up a big can of worms that I do not want to get into right now. Other than saying this about it, there's no question in the Bible that God is always the first mover. He is always the one who initiates. He's like the white chess. If you know chess, white always goes first. God always goes first. And yet, there's also no question that every human being who has ever existed has their own responsibility for what they're going to do with God's invitation. It's a mystery how it all works. Are you okay with mysteries? Tom, I know you're not, but we're going to have to keep going with it here. Now back to our text. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's elect chosen people. But the question is, did God choose Israel because they were so great? Was there anything in them that caused him to choose Israel as his elect chosen people? Look at what Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession, because you're amazing. Nope. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I I just love this. Don't miss it. God did not set his heart on the people of Israel because they were more special than any other people. God chose them because he loved them. It's profound. I want to apply this to our life and to this Gentile church here. They're now God's elect chosen people. God's kingdom plan is now going to go through us. We are the now, the Israel, uh, the true, we are the true, excuse me, what was true of Israel is now true of us as the church and those who believe in Messiah Jesus. God chooses us because he loves us. And God loves us because he loves us. Stop trying to make God love you. Stop thinking you have to prove yourself to God. God loves us because he loves us. Not because you're lovable, but because God is love. Friends, I know some of you here need a word of hope. If you have received the gospel, you are a part of an eternal family of God, adopted by God the Father to be a son or daughter. You're loved with an everlasting love because God has chosen you simply because God is love. If you're following on your notes, we are adopted into God's family, loved and chosen. So no matter what this world throws at us, we can have assurance of who we are in Christ both now and forever. Second thing this gospel does is give us joy even in the midst of suffering. Look at verse six. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. As we heard in that video, this church is going through tremendous suffering. This was, according to Jesus, to be expected for any person who would choose to follow him in this world. But what we don't expect is that suffering can also bring us joy. Why? Because suffering shows, why can it bring joy though? Suffering shows that we are becoming more like the person God intended us to become. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. Jesus' brother James says this about suffering in James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. There's those words again. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. We can have joy in suffering because it's making us into the people God intends us to be. It's shaping me into my Savior. And it's readying me to meet him face face. This is a huge theme in this letter. We'll talk about it in the weeks to come. Third thing the gospel does is it moves us to share it with others. The gospel moves us to share it with others. Look at verses seven and eight. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Verse 8, such a cool little picture Paul gives. He says, the Lord's message rang out from you. The Greek word there is reverberated. Some of you don't know this. I grew up playing the trumpet. And the trumpet is one of those instruments where when you blow in it, it reverberates throughout the room in order for the sound to get where it needs to go. And this is the idea of what Paul is saying about this church. They're reverberating throughout the known world because they just can't not share the gospel. We understand this. Listen, if you go to a new restaurant and you love it, what's the first thing you want to do? You got to try this restaurant out. You see a new movie, you love it. Oh, you got to go see that movie. It's so great. This new TV series on Netflix, it's amazing. This new song I just heard, you've got to hear it. We want to share the things that give us joy. And in the same way, this church probably only existed for about a year at this point. Can't wait to share the hope that they have in Christ. And so it's reverberating around the world. That's what hope does. Fourth, the gospel transforms us from our old life into a new life. Did you read verse 9 out loud on your notes there with me? It says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, the video kind of hinted at this, but you don't understand. We don't understand how big of a deal it was for them to turn from idols in that culture. Total transformation was necessary to do that. They had to leave their old way of life, their familiar way of life, and enter into a brand new way of life. The best correlation I could give to you today is asking us to give up the internet. It's such a part of our lives. What would we do without the internet? And in the same way, we can't just understand the gods of the Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere. Listen, if you were going to plant a tree, you would go pray to the relevant God. Not kidding. If you were going on a business trip, you better visit the shrine before you go. If you or your daughter or your son was going to get married, you would definitely give a sacrifice to the goddess of fertility and so on and so forth. It was a part of their everyday life. And so these young Christians are faced with this temptation towards idolatry at every turn. And Paul says, you turned from that. You came away from that. And what that meant is they turned their backs on their family. 
on their community, on their lives, on their idols. We face idolatry still today as much as our brothers and sisters. Of course, our idols are much more sophisticated, but they're equally powerful. Another big theme in this, le- in this letter, right? Some people are eaten up with selfish ambition for money, for power, for fame. Others are obsessed with their work, their body, their looks, sports. Football starts today. I'm going to skip church because I got to be right. I mean, sports are a huge idol today. Food, alcohol, drugs, sex. I could go on and on, but ultimately, here's the thing. Idols will leave us empty and without hope. None of those things will ultimately satisfy us. And so we respond to them in the same way the Thessalonians did, by turning. Oh, do you notice that word? Where else have we heard that word? When else have we heard that word? What does the word turn mean? If you were here last week, I expect an answer right now. What does the word turn mean? Repent. Thank you. They repented. They were going down this path of dead idol worship and they turned, they repented and their lives were transformed. Their old ways they've left behind and they're heading into the new way of the living water that Jesus Christ alone can offer. And just like grace, again, just quick mention here, this transformation, this turning is an ongoing process in our lives, yes? I can't just turn once. I'm turning every day because I'm constantly being drawn to new idols to give my life to. As John Calvin said, my heart is an idol factory. Amen and amen. And so the gospel constantly calls us, the grace and peace of God calls me to turn from that. Turn from that. Be transformed into a new way of life. Last, the gospel promises a better future. Let's read verse 10 on our notes. It's a continuation of verse 9. It says... And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he received from the dead, raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The gospel is hope for us, yes, now, but also not yet. It offers a better life for us right now. I'm convinced of that. If I could communicate one thing to this church, it's that the way of Jesus is the best way. It is the best way. It's the, it's the most hopeful life, but this life is not all there is. Thank goodness. There's a whole new life coming. A, a life of hope, of love, of peace. No more loneliness, no more sickness or disease, no more mental illness. All of that's going away one day. Amen. I have hope for that. The Thessalonians were in a time of pain. They were literally questioning, is this worth it? When is he coming back? That's why Paul gives these words about wrath. We don't like to talk a lot about wrath, but when you think about the return of Jesus, one of the things we want is that he's going to make all these bad things right. I remember watching some Christians getting beheaded for their faith a few years ago. There needs to be justice for that. There needs to be justice for what happened on 9-11. And while we can't always get the justice that we want to happen, one day God will set all things right. So as people of hope, we wait for that day with great expectation. Because if that day is not coming, where's the hope? Some of you know we dropped our daughter off to college 2,000 miles away. A lot of tears. This was a couple weeks ago. A lot of heartbreak. But we knew she was coming back to visit in five weeks. So listen, that keeps you going. Four weeks. It's only three more weeks. 
Now listen, multiply that by a million. And that's how we should be feeling about the return of Jesus. Instead of fixing my eyes on the next cool thing, I want to fix my eyes on the return of Jesus because that is going to transform me maybe more than anything else. I mean, can you imagine what kind of energy and life and focus it would clear and clarity it would bring to me? I mean, if that's really what I was fixing my eyes on, wouldn't that change my anxiety? The way I budget my money, the way I use my time, what would happen if I lived actively waiting for the day of Jesus' return? I'd probably live a lot like the Thessalonians are here, secure in my identity, having more joy in the trials that I'm facing, being more bold in sharing the gospel with others, and seeking to be transformed more into the image of my Savior. To put it as succinctly as I can, if you're on your notes, it's only the gospel that can make us a people of hope today. And so here's the question I want to leave you with this morning again. You're on your notes already. Just stay there. Am I experiencing and living as a person of hope today? It's not a one-time thing. It's not a you pray to prayer. Hope is the outworking of a life that has been, is being, and will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the Bible. What a gift. What a gift of grace to us that we can learn about you, who you are. Thank you for Paul, for inspiring him through the Holy Spirit to write this letter that we still have before us today, a letter written to a church back then, but still is applicable today for us. We can't wait to dig more into these words, believing that your word is one of power and conviction because the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote it and illuminates it. Lord, on this day, when we remember 9-11, when we look at all the things in this world that can cause us to feel hopeless, we're grateful that you remind us of the hope we do have in the gospel, the hope of the grace and peace that are ours because of Christ. Pray like the Thessalonians, that we would have hope in our identity, that we could have joy in our trials and suffering, that we would share this hope with others in word and deed, that we would seek to turn from the things that would draw us away from you, because we really do believe your life is the best life, and that we would wait expectantly for the day of your return. Until that day, we rejoice. We sing your praise. We put faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.